0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Uh, I also want to say that um, the message today, uh, it's, it's on lust and adultery and stuff like that. Uh, I'm not going to get graphic at all, but it is going to be of an adult nature. Um, To be honest, I I don't know, I'm thinking like, would your kids understand? I I just want you to be aware that I'm going to be addressing things of a sexual nature. And so if if you're parents here with your kids here, you can make your own determination as to whether it would be appropriate for them to be here in the room. And the rest of you are probably kind of squirming a little now, (laughs) even though you might be adults. I I also want to say that, um there 's um, a bias toward married men here, and it 's unavoidable because I think that was jesus' primary audience here that he 's talking to in this issue of adultery and so I apologize if you 're a woman here, and you may be thinking, well, you know I could have just sent my husband you know and then let him hear this and 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 uh, I just want you to know that as we get toward the latter half or toward the end of the message, I am going to broaden a lot of the principles so that it's really more about um, whether you're a man or a woman, what is the fundamental teaching here that Jesus is offering us so that it doesn't feel like it's just to married men, okay? Um, With those introductory words, let's go ahead into a a word of prayer and look into uh, God's word this morning. Father, we want to um, sit at the feet of your son's wisdom, And to learn from him. We confess our own inability to forge our own way uh, because of our own limitations. Our own lack of wisdom. And so grant to us a humble posture. The posture of a student. Uh, Grant to us a heart of faith to hear so many difficult words that seem really impossible uh, by the flesh. Grant to us the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives that would enable us to be everything that you have called us to be, in Jesus' name. Amen. Not long ago after writing uh, Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Salinger became a legend in the American literary world. Many readers experience this really profound identification with uh, Holden Caulfield. The uh, protagonist in this story, this 16 year old boy who was struggling with such a deep sense of alienation. Uh, And unlike most authors who would have gladly welcomed that level of fame, Salinger actually hated his newfound celebrity. And he ended up becoming a recluse, almost never leaving his home in New Hampshire. But despite his attempts to hide from the public, fans stalked him all the time, often waiting for hours in parked cars at the post office or in the grocery store in the hope of just gaining just a a word of wisdom from him in a brief moment of conversation that they hoped to have with him. Because these people felt lost in life. And they thought that Salinger, based on the things that he wrote in this novel, Catcher in the Rye, might have the answers that they were looking for. Exasperated, Salinger finally responded to one of these desperate fans looking for answers. I'm a fiction writer. I'm not a teacher or seer. People come and see me like you every year from all over North America, Canada, Europe. There's nothing I can tell these people to help them with their problems. I may present questions in my writing in a certain way, but I don't pretend to know the answers. I'm not a counselor. I'm a fiction writer. Salinger's own life was a mess. He was a cold and distant father who was alienated from his children. And he had multiple broken marriages, often with young teenage girls who are decades younger than him, as he realized that he was searching for something missing in his own youth through these marriages that never lasted. I think I share this to drive the point that just because you can raise important questions doesn't mean that you have meaningful answers to them, does it? This is actually the frustration I feel often when I watch Korean dramas. I mean, some series just really draw you in because they actually ask really intriguing questions about the complexity of romantic relationships. But as the series winds toward the ending, the stress level in me begins to increase because I realize there are only a few episodes left And I realized there is no way that they're going to resolve all of these conflicts or answer all of these questions by the final episode. And they never do. According to Korean dramas, even the most difficult and complicated relationship problems can be solved by one passionate kiss on a rainy night. That's all you need. The rain is really important, it seems. Okay, Um, That's how you live. Happily Ever After, according to the wisdom of Korean dramas. It's so much easier to ask questions, isn't it? Than to give answers to the deepest questions of life. But I would argue that this is where the wisdom of Jesus is above the wisdom of anyone else. Because he not only can make the right diagnosis to our problems, But he also shows us the solution to a whole new way of life under his wisdom and his leadership. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 records Jesus' heart. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw how hungry they were for his teaching and his healing ministry, His heart broke when he realized how lost humanity was. Everyone desperately searching for answers. And yet nobody knowing the right way, like the blind leading the blind. And as I've been saying throughout this series, many of us will acknowledge Jesus as our Savior. But have we really sat at his feet and allowed him to become our teacher? To show us an entirely different way of life than the life that we currently are pursuing based on our own wisdom of what we think is the right thing to do. We're at a part in the Sermon on the Mount known as the Six Antitheses, which pictures what a redeemed life looks like. And Jesus, as I said earlier, begins every one of these with this formula. You have heard that it was said, and then followed by, but I tell you. And he begins each section quoting from the Old Testament and then explaining how that law has been misrepresented by the Jewish tradition. And then finally showing what the true intent of God was in that law and then expanding on that law to give us an even fuller, deeper picture of what obedience to God looks like under his leadership and under his rule. And it it's, it's very possibly and even likely that Jesus didn't limit this to these six topics. It's just the six that were recorded, but it's very likely that much of his teaching centered on this, of unpacking the law of Moses and showing them how they were getting it wrong. And so as we looked at last week, Jesus begins with this issue of murder. I think, again, that's, it's a hard message for us to really identify with because I think, truthfully, murder isn't very high on most of our list of things that we're actively trying not to do. At least I hope so. <laughs> in fact, I think if, if we're really honest, the way that it factors in many of our minds is that there are murdering types of people And then there are non-murdering types of people of which you count yourself in that group. But there was this interesting study done by this guy named David Buss who was a a professor at University of Texas Austin and who was the author of a book called The Murderer Next Door that challenges that assumption. There was this international study that he conducted with over 5,000 people, many different countries. And out of that study, there was this shocking fact that 91% of men and 84% of women have at least one serious fantasy about murdering someone, okay? And he asked, what keeps you from acting out on this fantasy? And you would think that most people say because murder is wrong, but that's not what they said. They said, because I'm afraid I will get caught and go to jail, (laughs) These are not casual fantasies. This is people actually thinking and plotting and figuring out how they would actually do this. In other words, when it comes to murder, it seems like the motive is actually often there in people's hearts. It's just that the opportunity is not, which is why there aren't more murders in our world. And as we looked at, murder is ultimately the devaluing of human life, a life that has been made in the image of God. You know, the Nazis in World War II had this term for the Jews you know, called Übermenschen. Uh, it was called, uh, I'm sorry, Untermenschen, which is literally translated as subhuman. Jews were not even invited into the human category. In the 1994 genocide, In Rwanda, before the killing of over 500,000 to a million Tutsis were done, they had this term for the Tutsi tribe called Inyezi, which translated means cockroach. These are cockroaches. These are not people who are worth living. And what Jesus argues is that this devaluing of human life that leads to murder begins with a heart of anger and contempt. In our anger, we devalue others by unleashing wrath and condemnation on them, declaring in essence through our anger that you are undeserving of mercy and love and grace. In our contempt, we dismiss others as not even worthy of basic human dignity. And I want to say this. In America right now, in the moment that we're in in history, there is so much anger and contempt in this country right now, isn't there? We have become so polarized around race and immigration and even COVID and the vaccine. And it's one thing to disagree with someone's beliefs or values, but often that difference is attached with so much condemnation and the devaluing or the dehumaning, how can you even think like that? You are like a barbarian. And I, I think it's that type of sentiment that has to be checked in the heart of a Christian. I want us to genuinely be wrestling with that. Who are the people that I devalue and dehumanize in my own life? And as we looked at last week, the solution to that devaluing is to see the value of others, see others, in other words, through the eyes of God, so that we end up valuing relationships rather than discarding them, and seeking reconciliation whenever possible. One of the church members actually reached out to me, and I said, I, I think spoke a really uh, helpful word to me, was saying that you know sometimes when we have actually inflicted trauma on someone else. Um, There may be caution there about us being too aggressive about seeking reconciliation with that person. It can almost, in some ways, maybe re-traumatize them when it's too aggressive. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, you know? And maybe sometimes we're seeking reconciliation, and the person we've offended or hurt is not ready to reconcile. And we have to be very cautious about, again, the aggressiveness with which we demand their forgiveness or something like that. In other words, this entire process of reconciliation has to be covered by the spirit of love. Love, let love be the overriding concern even as we seek reconciliation with others. Well, we now turn to the second antithesis which addresses the seventh commandment. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. These are difficult words, aren't they? Well, the Old Testament commandment is pretty straightforward, pretty clear. Don't commit adultery. In other words, don't sleep with anyone other than your spouse. Simple enough. But as with murder, to really deal adequately with this problem of adultery, what Jesus is saying is you have to go deeper into the heart of adultery which Jesus identifies as lust, the sin of lust. The first place that we need to start here is how radical this perspective was that Jesus held. The reason why I say that is because in ancient times, the truth is, the sad truth, is that women were usually blamed as the source of sexual temptation. They were seen as the villains in this story. A Jewish work known as the Testament of Reuben captures this sentiment in this portrayal of women as evil temptresses. Women contrive in their hearts against men. Then by decking themselves out, they lead men's minds astray. By a look, they implant their poison. And finally, in the act itself, they take them captive. Not a very flattering portrayal of of females, huh? And so to to combat this uh, adultery sin and other sexual sins, the answer, the strategy was containment. In other words, limit as much as possible the visibility of women in public. So in Jesus' day, Jewish women were kept separate from men in public worship at the temple. They were not allowed to sit at the feet of rabbis like the men were, and so they couldn't learn. They were never ever to physically come in contact with a man who was not a member of their family. They were required to cover themselves from head to toe whenever they were in public so that men could not be tempted by them. And the overall strategy is clear. If women are the problem then we must do everything we can to protect men from them. These evil, evil women. And we see this mindset in present-day Muslim countries, don't we? Where men often have the freedom to dress however they want. While the women must be fully covered from head to toe in public. Now, as I share this, none of this may be very convicting to you because your thinking is that my view on women is so much more enlightened and progressive than this. And this is not at all how our society thinks or how we think. But I want to say this. I don't think it's a rare event when I hear that a man who is addicted to pornography blames a spouse who is lacking in sexual interest. And the Mindset of the husband is something like this. I wouldn't have this problem if she wasn't so cold in the bedroom. The flavor of the blame is a little different, isn't it? But the blame shifting, nevertheless, is the same. We refuse to take responsibility for our own sinful desires what I'm trying to argue is we're not much better at owning our lust in the 21st century in America than the ancients were. In these male-dominated societies of the ancient world, women were seen as the problem when it came to sexual sins, and so they were punished far more severely. Men could even often escape punishment completely, while women could be put to death for adultery. Aulus Gellius, a second century Roman author, wrote If you should take your wife in adultery, you may with impunity put her to death without a trial. But if you should commit adultery, or if you should commit adultery or indecency, speaking to men, she must not presume to lay a finger on you, nor does the law allow it. It's telling that in John 8, the Jewish religious leaders dragged out and exposed the woman who was caught in adultery. The man is nowhere in the picture at all. But Jesus goes against this deeply entrenched tradition in his time of blaming the woman and puts the primary responsibility squarely on the men who are lusting after these women. In other words, what Jesus tells his disciples is not a warning against women, but against themselves. You are the problem. The lust that is in you is what you have to deal with. Some have mistakenly interpreted Jesus as arguing that in God's eyes, lusting after a woman in his mind is the exact same as sleep as if you had slept with her. And that is not what Jesus is saying. Instead, Jesus is pointing out that the sin of adultery begins invisibly in the heart, well before the actual act of adultery is committed. Matthew 5.28, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The literal wording there, that is being used is Jesus saying, for anyone who stares at a woman with the intent of lusting after her. This goes beyond just simply noticing the physical attractiveness of a woman, which in and of itself is not sin. But it is now using her beauty to fuel your sexual desire and your fantasies. And just like murder, when it comes to adultery, the motive is often already there then by the time that the act takes place. All that is needed is the opportunity. That's in essence what Jesus is saying. You have already bred a heart of adultery through your lust so that all that is waiting is an opportune time to carry it out unless something more fundamental is addressed in you. And as with anger and contempt, the ultimate problem is that lust devalues and dehumanizes women by reducing them to nothing more than objects of sexual desire. Here is the sad truth that I don't think most men are willing to confess, is that we often judge a woman's worth based on her physical attractiveness or even sexual desirability. And what the Bible is saying is this is not the way that it's supposed to be between men and women. So what should we do with our struggle with lust? What do we do with it? Well, Jesus offers this crazy solution of gouging your right eye and severing your right hand to prevent you from lusting. Now, I want to say this. Jesus couldn't have meant these words literally. Because as radical as it would be to blind ourselves and to amputate parts of our body, these extreme measures wouldn't address the heart problem, which is what Jesus is always driving toward. What Dallas Willard says in The Divine Conspiracy. Now truly, if you blind yourself... You cannot look at a woman to lust after her because you cannot look on her at all. And if you sufficiently dismember yourself, you will not be able to do any wrong actions. You could avoid sinning if you simply eliminated the body parts that make sinful actions possible. Then you would roll into heaven a mutilated stump. But this is the catch, he says. The mutilated stump could still have a wicked heart. The deeper question always concerns who you are, not what you did do or can do. What would you do if you could? Eliminating body parts will not change that. I think he gets right to the heart of the issue, doesn't he? What would you do if you could? Unless that is addressed, there's no hope for meaningful Victory over the issue of lust in our hearts. So if we're not supposed to take these words literally, then what does he mean exactly by blinding ourselves or amputating our arms? I believe Jesus uses such extreme and provocative language to emphasize the seriousness with which we must attack the problem of lust at its source. At its source. And this is what I want to say. If we're honest, I don't think we care nearly as much about guarding our hearts against lust as God does. The truth is, if we're really honest, our actions are of a lot more concern to us than what's going on in our hearts. Because our actions, we realize, is what can really get us in trouble, isn't it? It's what can expose us get us caught but when it comes to secret fantasies that i harbor in my mind who's ever going to know that and so we allow the heart to go in secret where it wants wherever it wants for as long as it wants The, the the logic is as long as i confine it in here where no one can see, then no harm, no foul. Who's hurt in that little pleasure of the mind? And this is the logic that Jesus attacks again and again and again in his teaching. He says that is categorically untrue. If you think that what you desire desire and what you nurture in your heart can be kept in private. You're fooling yourself. Because what you nurture in that heart privately will inevitably have public expression through your words and your deeds. They're inseparable. Luke six forty-five. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. It's the picture of a human being like a cup that is overflowing. And it's saying, whatever you've been stuffing into that thing called your heart, eventually all that stuff just starts spilling over into your words and your actions. And what was once secret, what once was private, begins to have visibility. Visibility. In the person that you are, in what others see in you. One of the great lies is that we can get away with anything as long as it stays locked up in your heart. But the Bible says the exact opposite. The things that we do in life, the choices that we make, what is our public face to the world, inevitably is influenced by what flows out of the heart, the secret places. That others did not see before. That's why Proverbs 27 verse 19 says this water reflects the face. So one's life reflects the heart. That is the determiner of the destiny of your life. All of the quality and the character of your relationships. The quality of your marriage. The quality of your relationship to your children. The quality of your friendships. Your career. Everything. Your relationship to money and wealth. All of that, what the Bible is saying, is ultimately driven by what you have been cultivating in secret in your heart. The course of your life, your destiny, will be determined by your hearts, not just by your actions. Willard, again, in The Divine Conspiracy, When one is inhabited by fantasizing visual lusting, it, like anger and contempt, make its presence known. It is detectable in one's body language and expressions. As a result, it has pervasive effects on everyone in the situation, even though it is not, quote, acted out. Indeed, being what it is, a condition of the embodied social self, it is always acted out to some degree and simply cannot be kept a private reality. The look is a public act with public effects that restructure the entire framework of personal relations where it occurs. I think many women can identify with that feeling of being creeped out when you're being looked at by a guy. And it doesn't feel like it's with pure motives. And as far as that guy is concerned, he may be fantasizing and thinking whatever and thinking, well, she doesn't know anything. But it's actually rather surprising How often a woman can feel that vibe of creepiness, right? I say, this guy makes me feel really weird. What Willard is saying and what the Bible is saying is that which you think you can keep walled up and secluded in the secrecy of your heart, even in the way that you look at women, it begins to reveal itself. And it begins to show. And so what Jesus is saying is deal with that heart. Deal with the sin at its root, at its source. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14 says this. With eyes full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed, an accursed brood. Peter is describing something really shocking here. And it is a person that has cultivated lust in their heart toward women to such a depth and for such a prolonged time that he describes their condition as their eyes are full of adultery, meaning they are now incapable of seeing women in a healthy way. When they look at a female... All they see is sexual desire. All they see is opportunity, lust. And so these are predators. They prey on the unstable. This is the end game of a heart nurtured in lust. Eyes full of adultery. You have completely dehumanized the female gender so that all they represent for you is the objectification of sexual desire. They have lost the ability to see women as persons in any kind of healthy way. I want to drive now into the last part of the sermon then to what is it that God, through Christ, is really offering us as healing from all of this. I think one of the limitations is that we often frame lust as a very, at a very individualistic and personal level. We, we frame it primarily as a self-control problem, or for some of us, maybe even as an addiction problem. And so we focus on things like accountability partners or even installing software that polices are online browsing to make sure we're not at websites that we shouldn't be looking at. And I want to say this. Practical measures like this may be helpful. In in fact, they may be vital to dealing with sexual temptations. I don't want to disregard those things like accountability partners and things like that. It's just that I don't think it really gets us to the goal line of what Jesus has in mind when he's combating adultery and lust. The biggest problem with lust is that it undermines our ability to experience healthy, life-giving relationships with others of both sexes. In other words, to fully tackle the lust problem, we have to do more than simply stop sexualizing others. We have to learn how to see them as real people and love them in healthy, God-honoring ways. In other words, the the ultimate answer is not just avoidance. It's real love without the sexual innuendo. Avoiding looking at women or putting up all kinds of protective guardrails may help us deal with the lust problem to some degree, but it doesn't address the core heart issue of healing that which is broken in our relationship with others. In other words, learning how to love both men and women with purity, seeing them as God sees them, and not through our eyes of lust. And I think Jesus modeled what healthy relationships look like with women as a man. uh, And in doing so, it's really fascinating to see, just go through the Gospels one time, And just study how Jesus related to women. And what you discover is that he broke so many taboos in Jewish society that were intended to separate men from women. Mark chapter 15, verse 40 to 41. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. This was unheard of in those days. But in Jesus' group, in that discipling community, women were an integral part of it. Men and women traveling together with Jesus and the women actively supporting him in his ministry. He initiates, in John chapter 4, a conversation with a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, in a time when it was considered absolutely inappropriate for a man to publicly address a woman like that. And he broke that taboo. And he is the one that started the conversation with that woman and ministered in a very deep and profound way to her deepest needs. He allowed Mary to sit at his feet and receive his teaching along with the men which no other rabbi in his time would dare to do. He even allowed a woman to touch him, anointing his feet with perfume and wiping that perfume and her tears with her hair. And man, what a scandal that caused to the people who are watching this. Now, I think what I'm saying here is this. Jesus treated women with dignity and value, loving them with a pure love that had not even a shadow of sexual innuendo in it. Now, I suspect this is making some of you uncomfortable. (laughs) Listen. I know we are not Jesus, okay? And in the frailty of our flesh, there is a wisdom in certain guardrails and certain lines being drawn about what women and men can do with each other. I acknowledge that. But at least the Gospels give us a picture of the kind of healthy relationships that ought to be possible in the kingdom of God from hearts. That are redeemed in the way that it fundamentally transforms how we see the opposite sex, and what that opens up in terms of genuine fellowship and love experienced in the community of God's believers. First Timothy chapter five, verse one to two. "Do not rebuke an older man harshly but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Absolute purity. We need to discover what that looks like at ICC. For men and women, can we advance the slide? Um, to be in deep and intimate fellowship with one another, but with absolute purity. And what I'm saying is this. The absolute purity part can't be limited to simply putting up walls of separation and rules of accountability, as important as they may be. The purity has to ultimately be rooted in a heart, That has learned to love fellow believers, both men and women, with pure motives like Jesus. That's what we're striving for. That's the vision of healing and wholeness among the genders that I believe God desires for us to experience. Not just to put up guardrails to keep us from falling out of our lane. Churches, in other words, ought to stand as living witnesses of what a community looks like that has experienced healing and wholeness from broken relationships, particularly when it crosses genders. And I think this is something that all of us have to really wrestle with. How would I characterize my relationship with men and women? Is there a purity there because of what Christ has done in my life? I was debating whether to go into all this, and I think we have time, right? So maybe I'll just share this a little bit here. Um, It's kind of interesting, this idea of a sex life, okay? Um, When we're born, sex is not really in the picture as a child. And then, of course, we hit adolescence and we discover Uh, the world of sex. And then here's another interesting thing is that as you get older, the role of sex sort of diminishes in your life as well. It doesn't quite take center stage as it did through much of your youth. It's kind of interesting that there's a window for sex, but it's not permanent. It's not a constant state. And what's also intriguing to me is that... um, Maybe sex will not even be a part of heaven, okay? Um, Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29 to 30. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, we don't know for certain But maybe procreation and sex in and of itself is temporary as a condition of this present earth. And some of you have just had your heart broken. (laughs) And say, that's not heaven. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's a little crass, I know. Um, It's interesting to think that sex is a gift given to us by God to actually, and it's a temporary gift. It's not an eternal gift. But it was given to us by God under the covenant of marriage to teach us something profound about a much deeper reality that will carry over into eternity, which is love and acceptance and intimacy. But I think sex has derailed many of us, especially guys. And it shows in your marriages because many of your wives know, uh uh-oh, I know why you're being nice to me, because you want something tonight. And for many husbands, they struggle. It's more about getting their sexual needs met rather than seeing a season where sex may in the later seasons of your marriage not even actually be all that important. But what that sexual act has accomplished is a deep level of trust and intimacy and care. I think that temporary nature of sex also speaks to singleness in the church and all the ways in which we have to affirm, whether you're a widow or you never got married or whatever situation you may be, that ultimately in Christ you are whole and you are a fully accepted and loved member of this community. And I think that's what we are invited to understand about the gift of sex is that it was intended to teach us something far more profound about what it means to learn how to give ourselves to others in love and commitment and faithfulness. And I think that's why this issue of lust is so important to what happens in the church and in the kingdom of God. It's not just about overcoming one of the many sins in our world, but how you deal with sexual temptation And what you do to deal with lust has everything to do with the kind of person that you are being formed into right now. Whether you are learning to truly love others as Christ wills you to love them. Let's pray. I think I've thrown a lot at you in the course of this message. and Maybe your head is kind of swimming a little bit because you've never really heard a sermon on lust and adultery quite framed this way. But I do want to challenge some of the prevailing ways that we tend to talk about sexual temptation as addiction and as uh, a bad habit that has to be overcome. And um, Those things are important. They have to be addressed as a practical matter. But to really understand the full picture in the Bible about lust and adultery and all of this, we can't just look at the negative that we're trying to avoid, the sin that we're trying not to commit. We have to actually think about what is it that the sin violates that God has originally intended for us. And what the Bible shows us is that sin, when it came to our world, has done quite a mess to relationships among men and women. So much abuse. So much manipulation. So much pain and hurt and heartache. So much unfaithfulness. Where our eyes have to be fixed is on the beauty of a community that God wants to create out of lives that are restored by his love so that we can truly see others as God sees them, not as objects of sexual gratification, whether it's your spouse or that beautiful woman that just walked into the restaurant and you give her the look. It's to see everyone as made in the image of God and deserving of your honor and dignity that you can afford to them and that work is a work that only God can do. It's not enough to say, I got through a week without looking at porn, and that's the victory. The victory is that in fellowship time, I can be across a very beautiful woman and see the beauty of her soul and see her as a sister in Christ and treat her with absolute purity to bless her, to minister to her, And say, I love you because God loves you. That's the picture of beauty, of being in the kingdom of God. That's what restored and whole lives look like. That's what God can do in us if we invite him into that work. We're about to come to the Lord's table here. Would you just pray for a minute or two before you do that? Where are the places of brokenness in your own life when it comes to opposite sex relationships? Where have there been struggles to try to understand each other? Feelings of abuse and hurt and neglect and all the different emotions that get stirred when we talk about a topic like this. And could I maybe invite you to invite God in? Say, God, I realize I need some serious healing. A lot of ways that my sinful past has broken the way I view the opposite sex. I want to know the healing and wholeness that you can provide for me. Just pray that for a couple minutes and then we'll come to the table as a church family and take communion together. Let's pray.